Okay, hello everyone and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabaresh, your host, and uh, we're very excited about, about our guest today and the topic. Um, as you know, um, in November, it, the church dedicated to the Holy Souls. And uh, let's talk about what is a soul. Do we have evidence of a soul? Um, and have you ever heard of near-death experiences? And are these true? Do we have evidence of them? Uh, our guest today is, yes, we know him uh, from the Marja Center, Father Robert Spitzer, and he joins me live from California in the United States. Hello, Father. How are you? I'm doing great, Charbel. How about yourself? Very blessed. Very blessed. Um, thank you very much um, for joining us. And uh, yeah, qu quite an interesting time uh, in our world at the moment. Um, I mean, elections, COVID-19, uh, you name it, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, uh, yeah. Many viewers from the Philippines have just experienced uh, a tragic um, typhoon. So, our thoughts and prayers are with them. Uh, a few days ago, um, lots of damage there, uh, so we're praying for them. But just around the whole world, uh, which which brings to mind <laughs> our life, uh -huh. how short our life is, and the church dedicates the the month of November to the Holy Souls. Yes, Father, um, I'm I'm excited about this month. You you are known as a scientist. Um, you you talk about the existence of God and and the evolution theory. But now let's get to the core of a soul. I mean. How do you yeah. know a soul is real? What is a soul? Well, first of all, a soul is what we might call a transphysical, that is to say, uh, you know, beyond physics, beyond the laws of physics, a transphysical um, entity, which is both conscious and capable of interacting with uh, uh, the world around it. So, um, you know, uh, this would be significant for both Christians, Jewish people, and of course, we can also have very much evidence of this scientifically, medically, uh, from two phenomena, one called near-death experiences and another terminal lucidity. And of course, we probably have heard, and maybe in our religious education courses or our catechism classes when we were younger, we heard that uh, we are born into the world with a soul, or we might have uh, heard, you know, in... Uh, in class that um, Catholics can believe in evolution so long as we do not uh, deny the existence of a transphysical soul that's unique to every person created by God. And and uh, so we might have thought of that. And then uh, maybe in this culture, some people thought, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't think there's any evidence for a soul. I don't think there's any evidence that we're going to survive bodily death. I mean, after all, we're just a bunch of molecules and atoms. I learned that in my biology and, and chemistry class. So, you know, why not? Why shouldn't I just reduce myself to a material, physical organism that uh, has a short lifespan here? And then it just dissipates. It moves back into its own uh, physical uh, and chemical constituents uh, at the end of my life. And there's a lot of good evidence for why we oughtn't to do that, why we... Uh, uh, ought to think that we really do have a soul, that, that the church's traditional teaching has been right low these 2,000 years. There's nothing kind of medieval or uh, mythical about uh, the soul whatsoever, that in fact it does exist. I'm just going to go through uh, three modes of contemporary evidence uh, right now. I'm going to give the primary emphasis to a phenomenon called near-death experiences, secondly to a phenomenon called terminal lucidity, and then talk about some other evidence that has been generated uh, just in the last uh, few years, Gettle's proof and um, 
and uh, uh, David Chalmers uh, over at Oxford University, uh, his evidence uh, for uh, some form of transphysical soul uh, for self-consciousness, the so-called heart problem of consciousness, and a few other areas like the five transcendental desires. So let's just start for a second. What's the evidence for a soul? Why, why would it not be valid to believe that you're just a bunch of atoms and molecules uh, that will dissipate at the end of your biological uh, life? Why would we hold the contrary? Well, this phenomenon called near-death experiences occurs, and it's been occurring, uh, and we have a really good record of them now over the last 30 years, for sure. Um, not just starting with 2090, it actually goes all the way back to um, um, 1978, um, you know, and I mean 1990, uh, but uh, 1978 um, uh, with, um, you know, the studies that were done by a doctor named Raymond Moody. But uh, this day and age now, we have at the in the United States um, a whole medical, uh, a whole department of a medical school at the University of Virginia that's devoted uh, to near death studies and uh, looking at the survival um, of the soul uh, from bodily death. The reason we have so much data today is basically cardiac resuscitation, and that's where it all started. And so as more and more uh, cardiac cases uh, came to be, uh, obviously the, the data that we have been able to receive of what happened to people after they reached a state called clinical death, uh, we've uh, now got that data pretty much cataloged. And we have thousands of cases, but let's take a look at the phenomenon itself. So, uh, you know, about uh, 15 seconds after bodily death, your brain, because it's not getting any oxygen due to the heart attack or some other thing, maybe you were in an automobile accident or you drowned or something of that nature, but uh, your brain begins to shut down. And the reason it is, is because without oxygen, you're not going to get any electrical activity in the brain. Now, when electrical activity in the brain ceases, it eventually goes to what's called a flat line, a flat EEG. And that's an electroencephalogram, which measures the electrical activity in the cerebral cortex. Uh, if there is electrical activity in the frontal cortex, it, it probably detect that as well. But the, the main thing uh, to remember is um, when you have a flat line, there's no electrical activity in, elect, uh, in the, in the uh, cortex and uh, the cortices. And because of that, uh, what you have is no judgment function, no consciousness, no thinking function, no memory, no ability to recall. Uh, basically, you are, in a way, uh, lights out um, in, in the sense of, uh, of your brain not being able to receive or give off or process any data whatsoever. Furthermore, it extends beyond the, the, the frontal and, and cerebral cortices. What you get to is um, the, uh, the lack of oxygen proceeds into the lower brain. And when that happens, you get what's called fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex, and other kinds of uh, basically uh, uh, just motor functions that are controlled by the lower brain that don't require any cerebral function. So when you see a, a person with flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex, et cetera, you say technically they are clinically dead. That means they're as close to brain death as you can possibly get without crossing the line into brain death. Because once you're, you're literally brain dead, uh, you're not coming back. But um, uh, now uh, what happens is person who is at that stage is resuscitated. 
And these people start reporting, um, you know, uh, but quite frequently uh, in about 20% of the cases that they left their body. So there was like a transphysical soul which left their physical body. And that transphysical soul could see, in fact, it could see 360 degrees around it. Didn't have to look at where the eyes were pointing. It could see behind and to the sides. And, and furthermore, it could hear, the, the, this transphysical soul could hear. Uh, it could also think, it could remember. All of its memories were intact, in fact, uh, more lucidly than uh, when, it, uh, when, it's, uh, um, when they were in their, their physical brain. They just remember this great lucidity that, that, that uh, takes place. And in addition to that, they're not subject to physical laws. So they can basically go up and down irrespective of gravity. They can go right through walls, which will become really important in just a moment. And so, uh, uh, you know, and uh, go outside the hospital, go out into the waiting room next door, et cetera, et cetera. So this group of, uh, of uh, people and patients, about 20% of patients who actually record them among, uh, this would be among adults. Uh, adult, um, about 20% of adults have a near-death experience when they hit clinical death. About 85% of children um, have uh, a near-death experience. And this will become important relative to what you mentioned, Charbel, uh, purgatory in just a moment, but I will uh, hold on to that for just a second to, to finish describing the phenomenon. So during this time, there are basically two stages, two phases in which this occurs. First, the body leaves, uh, the, I mean, the, this transphysical soul leaves the, the physical body and it's, stand, it's, it's kind of hovering up above uh, the body, looking down on the physical body, and they can see people working on the body. Maybe this is in a cardiac unit. Maybe it's at a car scene. And now, if you want to see some videos on this, uh, all you need to do is go to CredibleCatholic.com. And when Credible you're there, Catholic. we'll put that in the comments below. Yes. Okay. Go to CredibleCatholic.com. Click on the seven essential modules, big red button there, seven essential modules. And then after you click on that, then go in and go to uh, volume, uh, go to module one. And when you go to module one, just it'll summarize what I'm saying to you right now, but it'll have these embedded videos. So you'll see a, a blind lady who has been blind from birth describing what's happening to her during her accident, that she's leaving her body. She can see the whole scene that's going on around her and, and so forth. Uh, you can, you know, a, a blind uh, person, a blind boy, you know, is going through the hospital walls and is able to report the exact, you know, uh, position of a train that's moving past the outside of the hospital at the exact time that he is, uh, you know, he had his uh, um, yeah, near-death experience. And um, of course, this is uh, measured, um, you know, in the, uh, in the uh, operating room. And so uh, they can see that uh, he has no brain functions, you know, with a flat EEG. And during that time, there, uh, he's reporting exactly what this train's doing, how it's going around a curve, what the orchard of trees looks like, and he's never had it, you know, seen before in his life. That'll become more relevant in just a second as well. So the phenomenon itself is uh, exceedingly difficult to explain, and I'll, I'll, I can can go into that in in a moment. But first of all, that's the phenomenon, and phase one then is. You're in the world around you, the operating room, or maybe outside the hospital walls, or you went into the waiting room next door, but you're still in this world. In phase two, so... Father, Father good, can I just yeah, jump in there? Uh, just sure. Before we go to phase two, 
everything yeah. you just described there, we know this because these people have told us those experiences. We can't yeah. actually, it's not, re yeah, that, 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 that's the, the main uh, source, right? They've woken up or, or, or yes. uh, come back and explain this. Is that correct? They've, that's right. They came, they come back, they explain it, but then you can verify it. And the reason wow. you, you can verify it by four different uh, indicators. Uh, the first is just plain verifying what they told you actually happened. So, for example, um, you know, a, a nurse comes into the room after this man has been resuscitated and says, oh, you know, I'm sorry to tell you we lost your dentures. And he goes, no, no, you didn't lose my dentures at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, um, if you, you know, I, I saw what was going on in the operating room. The nurse, before you put the paddles on me, the nurse with the red hair took the dentures out of my mouth. She opened a drawer um, that was next to a, a machine that looks like this, put the dentures in there and slammed the drawer. If you find that machine, you can find the drawer, you'll find my dentures and sure enough, there it is. Or one woman says, you know, when I left my body, I just went right through the hospital walls and uh, I was hovering above the third floor of the hospital wall, uh, of, you know, outside the hospital wall up there on the third floor. And I am looking down on this ledge and I saw a tennis shoe right there on the ledge. It had a worn uh, toe, a worn little toe, and uh, it was a, a left shoe and, and the, uh, the, um, the uh, shoelace was stuck under the heel, and it's probably been out there for about 20 years, but it's not visible to anybody on the outside. But I saw it sure as can be. It's right there on the ledge. And one of the researchers uh, for Dr. Melvin Morris goes crawling out on that ledge, and uh, sure enough, um, there is the uh, shoe exactly as uh, uh, identified. Click, you know, take the picture of it. Uh, this gal amazing. really knows what she's talking that's about. Amazing. Um, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, the, the, the amazing thing there, what you're describing is the only way they could have known is if, if, if they literally were, were there. Now, th this is during the time that they're, they're, they're out of, they're, they're not conscious, right? Or, or they're, they're, this is phenomenal that people may think they're just on life support or, or not with it or, or potentially gone. And, and here yeah. we go. They're describing things at the time that the only yeah. way they would have known is if, yeah, the, the, this was possible having an outer body experience of some sort or the soul as you described, this is, that's fascinating, Father. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there we ha there's a, a Dr. Janice Holden wrote an entire book trying to consolidate 32 different studies on this with about a thousand cases, noting that about 80% of the people who are making these reports of what's going on when they're, um, uh, when they've died um, is, uh, uh, or when they're clinically dead is um, they're 100% accurate. I mean, that's, so far beyond what you'd ever get in a courtroom with, uh, you know, from witnesses. Right. So, I mean, you can pretty clearly see, I mean, some people go right into the waiting room next door. So they pass right through the operating room wall and go to the waiting room next door where their relatives are. And they can report the entire conversation that is taking place while they're dead. Literally in another room <laughs> in a totally different room, completely separated from the operating room. No possible way. If you didn't pass through that wall, there's no way you could report that conversation accurately. And I mean, there's literally thousands of these cases, which have they're called, it's called veridical data, which have been verified after the fact by independent researchers. So that's the first kind of data. The second kind of data that's 
even more important is that blind people, 81% of blind people, 81%, that's a lot uh, of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, see for the first time when? When they're clinically dead. That means no, you know, no flat EEG, fixed and dilated people. So, okay, these people are clinically dead. And of course, these the videos that I was just talking about on CredibleCatholic.com are all of blind people. So basically, you know, um, uh, this uh, lady is reporting this uh, um, blind lady from birth. She's blind from birth. She, she's uh, reporting she's in the automobile accident. And she can tell you exactly every single thing that was going on, what the medics looked like, you know, what they were doing to her. She wanted to say to them, I'm okay. Really, I'm okay. You can stop. You know, I, I'm, I'm fine here. You know, I'm conscious. But, of course, she couldn't communicate with these people because uh, it's kind of a barrier. And then, of course, the um, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, the phase two part of it is you go to this heavenly kingdom. You meet your deceased relatives and friends and you also meet, uh, you know, a beautiful white light, um, which most people identify as either Christ or Jesus or God. So um, essentially, um, this is a. Uh, uh, a very common phenomenon that you you know people go to heaven. I'll talk about purgatory in a moment, but the main thing to remember is that's a second phase. But not everybody goes through the second phase into heaven. Um, uh, there's about fifty uh, percent um, stop. The, their their experience stops just in the operating room. And like I said, with adults, eighty percent of adults do not have at least a remembered near death experience. But here's the deal. 85% of children do have a near-death experience, and only 15% do not. So that's very interesting. Um, but i get onto that in, in another moment exactly. But 81%. Why, why are the blind people so important? The reason is, is because blind people can't hallucinate a visual image. And the reason they can't hallucinate a visual image from their physical brain is because they have no visual images in their physical brains. So this takes the whole hallucination hypothesis, right? Oh, he lacked oxygen. He was given morphine and started hallucinating, you know, and, and here's the problem with the hallucination explanation. Number one, blind people don't have any visual images to hallucinate with their physical brain. So the physical brain is never going to be able to explain how 81% of blind people can see. Secondly, even when blind people are in their physical bodies, uh, they can't see. So the fact that they can see without their physical body is indicate and, and can report data accurately. The train passing by, there's a, an arrow pointing to the right. It's the train is going around a grove of trees to the right, et cetera, et cetera. This happened at this time, you know, after my death and so forth. You can tell very clearly that, you know, th these blind people are seeing, but they're not doing it with their physical brain or their physical eyes. Something has to be surviving it. That's right. and so, uh, so it can't be a lack of oxygen, stimulation of the temporal lobe. Besides, anyway, hallucinations are notoriously inaccurate and very disturbing. Whereas near-death experiences are the opposite. They're uh, very accurately uh, describing data around them. And by the way, they're peaceful, not disturbing. So they bring mm -hmm. peace. 
that gets me to a third piece of evidence. And the third piece of evidence has to do with a phenomenon called death anxiety. Now, death anxiety, it's important to know, is a subconscious, you know, it's subconsciously generated. In other words, people who have death anxiety don't do it because they're afraid in their conscious mind, their physical brain, they're afraid that they're going to die, or they might be, uh, but really, we're all scared. Even people like you and me who have a high degree of religious consciousness, I mean, in my brain, I do not doubt for a moment that I'm, you know, that God has the, re- and Jesus has the resurrection in mind for me. I don't doubt one single second in my conscious mind. However, in my subconscious mind, I cannot control my fear of death. It's impossible to control it. I, I mean, if you put an ink blot in front of me that, you know, is, is reminiscent of something like a shark or something dangerous, I'll still, if you put on a modified polygraph on me and, and you measure my uh, sympathetic nervous response, I'm going to basically respond with anxiety, right? I'm going to basically, you know, register high with those symbols. Now, here's the deal. You get a, a person who's had a near-death experience, or even as a child had a near-death experience, and you're now measuring his death anxiety or her death anxiety when she's 50 years old. There's not a single subconscious death anxiety response measurable by a modified polygraph. No kidding. Wow. The death anxiety on not just the conscious level, on the subconscious level disappears completely. It's inexplicable. We don't know how this happens, but something happens to them, both consciously and subconsciously in that experience, which removes the death anxiety altogether. I could show you images of sharks and skull and crossbones and macabre scenes. It wouldn't affect you at all. I mean, that, that's bizarre. Fourthly, uh, that's the last phenomenon that I was describing about meeting deceased relatives in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the University of Virginia, uh, through two people, uh, Dr. Bruce Grace and Dr. Emily Kelly, uh, both of them actually started cataloging these um, experiences of meeting deceased relatives and what they were saying. Now, in a fair percentage of the cases, people didn't even know the relatives who were meeting them. They were people who had died 20, 30 years, maybe before uh, that child was born. But nevertheless, maybe it was an aunt of the child, but the aunt had died young and the mom had gone on and so forth to have this child. And then the child has this near-death experience and meets the aunt. And the aunt says, oh, here's, you know, we had a teddy bear whose name was, you know, this. And we used to play this game called this. And, you know, I'm your aunt so-and-so, you know. So the child comes back and, uh, you know, and says, you know, hey, mom, you know, I met aunt so-and-so. And, of course, the child never even knew about aunt so-and-so because, you know, she didn't want to tell the child about a deceased aunt, you know, when he was so young. And, he, of course, he knows everything about her everything about the their secret name for the teddy bear, everything about, you know, uh, what the, the, the games that they used to play, uh, you know, has, a, a, you know, a, a complete idea of where they grew up or, or, you know, what they did and so forth. And so you start cataloging this time after time after time, where you get so many people who meet these deceased relatives, mostly deceased relatives, sometimes a deceased friend, but mostly deceased relatives. 
and they accurately report these data that they had absolutely no cognizance or access to prior to their near-death experience. So when you start putting together all four kinds of evidence, particularly the 81% of blind people who see for the first time when they're clinically dead, it begins to look almost indubitable that everyone out there has a transphysical soul and everyone out there is likely uh, to not only survive bodily death, but you're likely to come into one arena or another. Now, about 4% of of near-death experiences are quite negative, dark, filled with evil and foreboding. Then you have uh, that that's really about 4% of the 20% that I mentioned. Then, uh, you know, the other uh, 96% are, uh, of the 20% are heavenly. But this leaves us with a question. Well, what about the other 80%? Why didn't they have a near-death experience? Why do they not have seemingly any memorable experience of what is going on during this time when other people are having near-death experiences. Well, I've got two speculations. You know, I can't be sure because they they didn't say anything, but one speculation is maybe they suppressed the memory. Maybe it was unpleasant and maybe they suppressed it. And that can happen. Memory suppression can be remarkably acute. But more likely than not, maybe they didn't have any experience at all. Maybe they are awaiting some other kinds of things that need to be determined either here in this life or what we would call as Catholics in purgatory and the life beyond. Because, you know, obviously since these things haven't happened, there's no way that they can have an experience of either hell or heaven at this juncture. God still has to allow them to be free to make certain decisions, to do certain things. Maybe there's need for repentance. Maybe they have to get their act together, you know, and so forth and so on. So why the people who have the 4% who have the truly negative experiences, um, I'm not sure. Uh, Whereas other people just don't have it. Um, But I have a funny feeling um, that purgatory or God suspending any kind of a judgment Mm until um, some other decisions or things are made, probably is the most likely explanation. And that probably explains, too, why children, um, you know, almost universally, uh, 85% of children have a a near-death experience. And of that 85%, almost 100% have a very, very um, blessed, you know, experience where they see Jesus or they see deceased relatives. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Father, just so, just in, in in summary of those four, uh, I guess um, types of evidence mm-hmm. of a soul. Can we just list them just in bullet points, just for people? Sure. If you want to jot this down, this is fascinating to have a discussion with family members and friends and and whoever. But the four again, what are the four? Just in yeah. just in bullet point. Right. Number one is called veridical data. That's okay. where a patient responds one hundred percent accurately about what's going on during the time of death when that data could not have possibly been guessed. In other words, it's highly unusual, couldn't have been guessed, and it was verified by an independent researcher after the fact. That's called veridical data. Number two 
81% of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, see for the first time when they're clinically dead. See for the first time when they have no brain functions, when they have no visual functions whatsoever, and they never had a visual function anyway. And of course that can't be explained by hallucination, anoxia, temporal lobe stimulation, et cetera. The third area is the lack of death anxiety in the subconscious level. So people who uh, basically if you know, in the ordinary population, I show you death images, you will respond with death anxiety almost immediately. People with a near-death experience, you can always tell that they did have a near-death experience. They have no response whatsoever. And so, of course, something has been altered on the subconscious level. Something profound has happened to them in their experience. Number four, they can report data that they had no knowledge or cognizance of um, prior to their clinical death, and they can report that data that comes directly from deceased relatives and friends. And of course, you know, the fifth uh, part, which is not really, you know, proving it, but there is a huge uniformity in the experience of the tunnel, the experience of leaving the body, the experience of going over to the other side and part of 50% of the people, and also the, um, uh, the, the white light, the meeting with deceased relatives, etc. This is across the board, uh, across all religions, uh, faith-based, non-faith-based people. This is not just Catholics coming up with this. Uh, this is anyone uh, across the board. Is that correct? That's correct. And by the way, um, only about two of the major researchers uh, uh, that you know um, are, I've mentioned are Catholics. Um, a lot of them started off as atheists or agnostics. Um, and the, these are medical doctors. Uh, a lot of them started off as, you know, like, uh, uh, um, uh, well, I, uh, you know, I better not, uh, I can't remember, uh, you know, which ones were the, the atheists or the agnostics, but of course, all of them now are believers, every single one of them. So, uh, I was so going to say, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I know, um, you know, some of them were Protestants, some of them are uh, Jewish. Uh, so when you go across the board, I believe Dr. Even Alexander said, uh, you know, that he was agnostic before uh, he was, uh, you know, a doctor who, uh, you know, a neurologist, as a matter of fact, and uh, a brain physiologist from Harvard and, and from, uh, I believe it was Cornell. And um, he was the one who had the experience uh, himself while his colleagues were monitoring his flat EEG, uh, his brain, um, uh, during the time that he was actually having the experience. So all those things... Um, uh, you know, um, uh, are uh, pretty relevant. Beautiful. F Father, how, um, and I might take this opportunity to invite those watching, and you've probably got a lot of questions right now. Pop sure. a few in the comments. If we've got time at the end, in the last five or 10 minutes, we may be able to get a few in, but uh, sure. but just you're probably thinking like myself, um, how has this impacted the science, uh, the industry, the whole industry? I mean, I mean, scientists around the world who discover this, mm -hmm. um, is science collectively, um, I guess, reporting these these this phenomena, and uh, and is it getting out there to more public? Are you are you finding more and more uh, stories like this, and and is this starting to become a bit more mainstream, or is this sort of quite exclusive? Only a few seem to care about this topic and and and, and cover it. How is it across the board in your experience um, among scientists? Yeah. 
very mainstream now, um, especially uh-huh. anecdotal accounts. So in the United States, we have lots and lots of anecdotal accounts of these things. Um, but also there are really excellent studies. Samuel Parnia um, from the University of Southampton did a marvelous uh, study for a peer-reviewed medical journal called Resuscitation. Uh, I, th- I believe that was a 2014, 2015 study, 2014 study, uh, right in that area with 2,060 patients. It has every imaginable safeguard uh, in there. You know, it's like almost double blind uh, studies um, and it's very well conceived. And I believe that is free online. So if you go to Parnia, P-A-R-N-I-A, um, um, Samuel Parnia, University of Southampton study, that one um, is uh, really excellent. Uh, he had a, an excellent team of physicians he worked with. Another one is by a Dutch uh, physician. His name is Dr. Pim von Lommel. And that was published in Britain's number one medical journal called The Lancet. And so if you just go to The Lancet, uh, you can see his 2001, I believe it is, his 2001 study of 360 patients in the Netherlands um, and, um, and uh, in Europe. Uh, there's Dr. Janice Holden's study, which I just made reference to. Um, she's the one who compiled those uh, multiple studies of the veridical data, uh, you know, using the most stringent uh, criteria uh, for assessing it. And then there's another one. I think all these are free online, uh, by the way. And uh, uh, Dr. Kenneth Ring's study of uh, the 81% of blind people who see for the first time when they're clinically dead. So there's really good uh, solid studies with um, uh, excellent uh, statistical uh, bases, safeguards, uh, et cetera, verification of data um, that's the, that are part of the study. So that is available, but there's a lot of anecdotal um, you know, evidence as, as well. And um, these continue to be you know, the ongoing subject of research at the University of Virginia Medical School, uh, which is has a department, as I said, fully uh, dedicated to it. So there, it is becoming quite mainstream. And um, every now and again, you can actually see on just popular television programs where um, these near-death experiences are, are portrayed. But I think people sort of look at it, well, that's just a story. But actually, there are really good studies out there that show, I think, conclusively, I mean, I just don't see how you can explain the eighty-one, the vertical data from eighty-one percent of blind people. I, 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 there's just no way I've seen any physicalist explanation that's been able to do this. So I think odds on, um, you're gonna, you have a transphysical soul that's gonna survive bodily death, um, and uh, you may, um, you know, it tells us we're gonna have a, a judgment, and it tells us that we're going to encounter not only deceased relatives and friends, but we're uh, gonna encounter. Um, a being, you know, that we might call God uh, or Christ or Jesus. And that's across the religious spectrum and across the geographical spectrum. Praise God. Praise God. This is amazing. Um, uh, Can I ask, uh, maybe, um, and being in the Holy Souls Month, and and it would be nice to touch on purgatory, and you hear um, many stories, starting, you know, um, visions, say, of God, of ghosts and people who claim that there are ghosts and, but has there been any link? So now what about um, witnessing sort of uh, spirits? Has there been any way of 
proving or, or, or showing evidence of other people seeing ghost sightings? Or And is there a link to, to purgatory here? Is there a link to those souls who are sort of not in heaven, not in hell, they're waiting? Um, do we have a link with these sort of sightings? Well, I think ghosts are uh, definitely, they're not as, the studies of, of ghosts or spirits, um, you know, are less uh, careful than those that have been done on near-death experiences because you get near-death experience patients, right? Um, uh, you get them in a clinical setting, uh, which is ideal for testing brain function and everything else and so forth. The, uh, the difficulty to, to make the ghost studies accurate is, um, uh, is you've got the, the problem of uniformity, uh, you know, it's difficult to say, well, is this person just reporting a story? Is there other kinds of evidence? Now, with ghosts, you do, you can get certain kinds of uh, electrical responses uh, that show that there is an energy in the room. Uh, you can also, you know, get some phenomena that seem to uh, be uh, voice-like. Uh, certainly, um, you know, there is preternatural phenomena has definitely uh, been, you know, verified again and again and again and again. I mean, I just wrote a book called uh, uh, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, and chapter three of that book is devoted to a couple of well-known exorcism cases. But, you know, in the vast majority of exorcism cases, paranormal phenomena is phenomena are very common indeed. So with respect to ghosts, you get basically three kinds of evidence for ghosts. Um, tough to sort of standardize it, tough to kind of uh, put it into the kind of rigor you have with near-death experiences taking place in a clinical setting. But nevertheless, I think it's almost unquestioning that you do have definitely definite changes in electromagnetic phenomenon uh, in response to certain kinds of, you know, so if somebody speaks to a ghost, uh, you can see that um, you can get emotional reactions. Definitely, there's preternatural uh, phenomenon associated with ghosts where objects are moving all over the room. You know, I mean, like we're talking at a distance here, right? Nobody's moving them. There's no physical explanation. But, you know, the chair is moving around the room or, you know, the bottle is flying through the air on its own. You know, well, if you get, a, a, you know, thousands upon thousands of such phenomena, um, you know, people say this is associated with the spirit of Joe Blow, you know, then pretty much uh, you can begin to say, you know, just by sheer number of testimony, uh, testimonies, you know, ghosts are, are, are uh, probably, um, you know, a well-documented phenomenon. And then, of course, there's people's testimony uh, as well, uh, you know, what this ghost has said or uh, the ghost that appeared and so forth and so on. Uh, Chesterton had a very witty remark, D.K. Chesterton had a very witty remark a while back. He just said, well, he said, you know, the physicalist is a, a strange person. He just said, the physicalist would rather believe his theory than millions of testimonies to the obvious. So, uh, and he was talking about, of course, the phenomenon of ghosts. But uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that it's not, like I said, as well-documented, uh, but yeah, spirits are there. Uh, they certainly manifest preternatural phenomena that we cannot explain by any known law of physics. Uh, definitely uh, can talk about data that people report later that, you know, has been told to them that, uh, how would they know this data, et cetera? And so I think 
for these reasons, you know, I, you know, 88% of physicians practice religion. That was, you know, wow, this in the United States anyway, and the NIH uh, uh, study and uh, Finkelstein study show that, yeah, 88% of um, physicians practice religion and 67% of the, that 88% uh, practice moderately to highly. So, um, and, and get this, 72% of, or maybe 73%, 72, 73% of physicians believe in miracles past and present. A Pew survey, which is a very reputable company uh, here in the United States, you know, shows that 73% believe in miracles past and present. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, these people are empirical people, right? They're trained to observe. They're trained not to sort of rely on psychic explanations for things. They're, they're trained to be dispassionate and objective. And most of them pretty much are in order to make an appropriate objective diagnosis. How, why, why would 88% of physicians practice religion? Why would they believe, uh, 72 or 73% believe uh, in miracles past and present? Why? You know, it, it's just, there's something I think, you know, intrinsic to the medical profession near-death experiences, terminal lucidity, which I haven't yet explained, uh, you know, the, the phenomenon of ghosts or spirits, which is just, you know, it's so obvious and omnipresent that, mm. frankly, it's almost undeniable, even to a strictly uh, observational, empirical observer. Amazing. So much evidence out there. Um, it, how is this not getting to, I guess, if if we're understanding it today, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about the stats, but we understand more and more um, statistics are showing there are more people got leaving religion than ever in, in, in recent history. And, and the numbers of people who say they don't belong to a particular religion and the increase of atheism, agnosticism, it's on the rise. Yep. But with, with, with topics like this, evidence like this, um, uh, is it that just that, people are just not coming across these stories. I mean, just this alone, what we're talking about today should be enough to get people questioning. Is there a oh, God? I mean, we actually, we, uh, uh, we, we made these modules like module one on near death yes. experience um, in the seven essential modules. We made them for middle school and high school classes because that's the point at which the kids are mm. making the decision to leave. They're while the doctors are all becoming uh, religious um, the kids on the other end, um, the seventh and eighth graders and the high schoolers are, are leaving um, religion and religious belief and even belief in God. And so, um, you know, at, at a pretty high level. And so we the first the first module we have deals with near death experiences. I can tell you this right now. After that module is over, those kids are jaw dropped. They yes. basically are going, wow, do you have more of these videos? And I, we go. We have a whole plethora of them, right? There's a ton out there to, to, you know, for you to watch. And But the main thing is to emphasize the studies because, boy, I'll tell you, it's really hard to deny that, you know, you're going to live after this life, uh, as, as Moody put it, life after life. So the, uh, the idea um, is uh, to get the data out there uh, into yeah. the 7th and 8th graders because they watch a lot of fictional and cartoon things and a lot of ah, what I would call more entertainment TV. 
So it really is necessary to get these things into the classroom. And that's why we made the seven essential modules and CredibleCatholic.com. I'm glad you mentioned that, Father. And, and this is probably a good opportunity to invite all of you watching now. Go to If you are looking at the links below, um, go to Credible Catholic. Um, there's also the Marges Center as well to look at all the articles. There's free modules, courses. Uh, we are literally saying these are free and you've mm -hmm. got, you are able to take these modules. If you're a teacher watching this now or a catechist or someone who's in charge of young people, Bible, Sunday school, whatever it is, you could take these modules and present them to your class, to your students, and and it's free of charge. This is which is mind blowing. It's amazing. Um, and Father's put so much effort into this. Um, Father, can we talk about? And, and by the way, Parisia has been uh, very privileged and blessed to partner with the Marge Center, and we've got a page on our website, a partner page, and you've got some video samples there, links. So if you um, go on to the Parisia Media page, you'll actually see under Partners. Um, the Marja Center there, and you'll see some more information. So please take advantage of that. Um, and of course, share these podcasts. Share, this is now our third one with Father. We had our first one that just sort of talked in general. We spent a bit of time on uh, the evolution theory and creation and, and proving sort of, is there a God? Our second one was on the rosary, and that was phenomenal. We touched on miracles and 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 and, and actual evidence of, of stories of people who claimed of miracles, healings through Our Lady's intercession. We then and now today um, we're talking about the soul. Uh, we 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 have another one down the track coming up, and and lots coming uh, coming your way from different angles to show that God is real. This world is created. <laughs> there is an intelligent designer. We have a soul. There is life after death. All these things that we take for granted um, can be actually showing evidence from science, which is what I am so excited about. Um, Father, let's talk very quickly about your modules. So so just. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they are free. Anyone yes. can go on there now, watch them, download them. Um, please talk about them. Yeah, well, right now we have what's called the 12 plus modules. So that's for seventh and eighth graders and above. Uh, then we also have the 15 plus modules, which are for uh, what we might call, you know, um, underclassmen, uh, underclass uh, um, um, uh, high school students. So that'd be freshmen and sophomore uh, students. Uh, we have just finished what we call the advanced modules. Uh, this is for seniors uh, in high school or college students who want to use uh, these modules. So uh, the advanced modules are, are really good for college students uh, who want to study this thing on a much deeper level, a little bit more intellectual level. But also you can make a senior capstone course in a, like in a Catholic high school uh, just devoted to these modules. In fact, the whole country in Ireland is going to be using uh, these modules, the advanced modules for their senior cycle courses wow. there in, in Ireland starting next year. So um, it's a good, um, uh, you know, senior capstone course. It, you know, it can really help solidify faith uh, before kids head off to college. Uh, oh, yeah. How do you get there? Uh, go If you want the modules, uh, all three sets of the modules, go to CredibleCatholic.com. And then when you click on the seven essential modules, you'll see uh, three things. Uh, you'll see the 12 plus ones. You'll see the 15 plus, And you, now you'll uh, uh, see the advanced modules. They're coming uh, by the end of the month. And you'll see them there. They're all free of charge. The workbooks are also free of charge. Um, and uh, the workbooks really are tantamount to uh, 
um, you know, a, you know, there's seven, you know, rather big workbooks and even a workbook on starting a spiritual life, which you would call module eight. And that amounts to a free book, honestly, just online. You can download it, print it off as, as you wish. Uh, but it's the latest contemporary scientifically validated evidence uh, and, the, and the latest contemporary uh, philosophical rational evidence for God, the soul, Jesus, and these miracles you, you mentioned. And um, uh, module one uh, really is devoted to the soul. Uh, that's the, the, the uh, studies we've been discussing today. Module two um, is devoted to uh, the, the evidence for God. And I think about two months ago, uh, we talked about the evidence for God there um, on your show, uh, Charbel. And so um, uh, that was uh, the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof, the entropy evidence, the fine tuning of universal constants, et cetera. Then the third um, uh, module deals with philosophical proof of God, uh, as well as the big questions like evolution, God and science, the God particle, uh, Galileo, um, aliens, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the big questions that a lot of kids have. Uh, we give a very good rational scientific, but very Catholic answer to all those questions. And then uh, module four is about Jesus. That's where we get right into the Shroud of Turin, but also the latest right. historical evidence. Uh, very fascinating. That's another jaw dropper for the kids. Module four on Jesus, especially the evidence from the Shroud, just nails them. Uh, very nicely um, and gets them not only thinking about God and the soul, but also Jesus. Then in the fifth module, that's when we bring up the church. We look at those miracles that um, uh, you just brought up with respect to um, uh, Our Lady, also Eucharistic miracles, also miracles associated with the saints that have been scientifically validated over the last 30 years or so. And so the, these are uh, contemporary scientifically validated miracles that are specifically Catherine, uh, Catholic doctrines. So for example, the Eucharist, the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist or Our Lady or the saints. So that's module five. Module six is what's called the four levels of happiness. That uh, takes a little bit longer to describe, but it's really about getting meaning and purpose in life solidified uh, for the kids when they're younger so that they won't make what we call a level one and level two error, which is so prevalent in our culture, trying to put their faith and ego comparative identity uh, in their Facebook profile or their Instagram profile. So, um, and then finally, module seven is why would an all loving God allow suffering? And how do you use your faith to suffer well and to get into heaven? So that's basically uh, uh, what the seven modules deal with. And uh, as I said, the advanced modules has an eighth module on starting a spiritual life. Wow, that is a, that, that's a mouthful. I mean, you've got a lot of work there. And mm -hmm. I highly, highly encourage, or if you're watching this, a teacher, I'm challenging you right now, teachers out there, please take full advantage of this and bring this to the classroom. Imagine the impact this will have. Many, many people have come to me uh, in our Bible studies, in, in the lot, lots of work. How do I help my children? How do I help my young people? Well, this is a classic way to start. If you've got people falling away from the church, people doubting, start here. Really show them the evidence that God is real. There is a, He does exist. And Father's done such an amazing job in, in doing this and presenting all the arguments, the evidence, and it's all there in an easy-to-follow format. Um, there is an exciting program that you're promoting, uh, a brand-new release. Um, yeah. Uh, could you talk about that as well? Because on the homepage, 
sort of um, talk about that as well? Yeah, we've got a resource now called the Most Asked Questions. And what um, we have done is, uh, or uh, tried to do is, is to put, um, um, uh, there's eight categories of questions that people have all kinds of, uh, you, you know, um, you know, their kids ask them questions or their students are asking them questions, but it generally fits into this hundred questions that um, uh, we've uh, given a, a basically an eight minute answer to it. Sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but around eight minutes each. And so it would be, well, do aliens exist? And what does the church teach about? You know, how can the church, um, you know, you know, does the church preach against evolution? If not, what does the church hold about evolution? Or what do theistic scientists hold about evolution? And, and do, you know, you, you name the question, whether it has to do with, you know, you know, difficult moral doctrines in the Catholic Church today concerning homosexuality or concerning, uh, you know, cohabitation, things like that, that seem to be normative within the culture. And at the same time, is there any statistical evidence that would seem to militate against that? Or sometimes it has to do with Jesus. How do we know he's real? What's the historical evidence? What did Jesus do? Why is he different? Why would we consider him the pinnacle of revelation? Or some, you know, of the areas that even of the devil, you know, uh, is the devil real? Is hell real? If it is, then, you know, what what is, uh, um, uh, you know, the significance and what's the evidence for it? Uh, then we also have the, the whole area too is, you know, uh, of, um, you know, uh, uh, the soul that we've been talking about today and a variety of other things. So there's about a hundred of these questions and wow. we uh, look at those. And honestly, I could almost just tell you about 90% of the questions your kids will ask you or your students will ask you if you're a teacher. I'm telling you about 90% of those questions are right there. We've heard them all. We've been in the middle schools, the high schools, the colleges for years. We've heard them all. Everything from, wait a minute, if everything needs a cause, then what caused God? Typical question. There's a really good answer to this question. We don't have to be you know, fiddling around. There's a good, incisive answer that kids can understand. Just click on it. You get the answer and so forth. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We are... Um We've got one minute here. Um, I want to see if we can we squeeze a very quick answer for this. We just got one question, uh, Janine uh, Paul, and uh, she talks about here um, uh, about the visitation dreams. So, explain visitation dreams from deceased relatives. Uh, more mm -hmm. often than not, it feels as if um, the person was truly present to you. Um, is there any, yeah, anything we can comment here about dreams and and especially of deceased people? Yeah, visitation dreams do have uh, a, a good a good deal of validity, and that's because of um, uh, you know again taking data that people would not ordinarily have any access to, and suddenly they know a whole lot of data about that person. Now that is a way of validating these visitation dreams. So, uh, for example, um, you know, these visitation dreams, some of them are, you're in your, you know, really deep sleep. Those are very hard to validate, to be honest with you. Okay. Now, you get some visitation dreams that are what we call half sleep or some visitation dreams that are basically you're almost daydreaming. So, you're very low state of, of sleep. 
And then things, you know, begin to happen, right? So it's not like a ghost phenomenon where you actually have some, uh, you know, paranormal phenomena that's happening around you, like bottle flying through the air, chairs moving on the ground, a chest of drawers, chest of drawers moving across the, the, uh, the room, etc. You don't have any of that physical phenomenon to verify or any sort of leftover imprint, uh, you know, from uh, the phenomenon. But what you do have is something that is, uh, you know, very cognitively uh, deep, uh, where you, you something has been revealed. If sometimes that um, uh, uh, that visitation dream, the person within the visitation dream uh, says something, for example, or appears in a way that you wouldn't know. So, for example, in, in one uh, particular example, the person had um, uh, grown a beard while he was on a voyage, but the person in question never knew that the person had a beard. And so when he appears, he died on that voyage, <coughs> unfortunately, but he appeared with a beard. And so she's looking at this person and she goes, you know, that's just like John, but, you know, John never had a beard, you know, and then finally uh, uh, come to find out that, um, you know, that all these things she thought she was, uh, uh, you know, uh, seeing you know, was she thought it was a figment of her imagination. All the things he was saying, she thought it was a figment of her imagination. But turns out, yeah, he really did grow a beard while he was on that voyage. And she found out after the fact. So there are these little indicators, but this is the most difficult phenomenon uh, to validate, um, you know, in any kind of a scientific way. Near-death experiences are the best. Terminal lucidity is the second best. Both of those phenomena happen in a clinical setting where there's actually monitoring of the brain going on, et cetera. Ghosts are the third um, easiest phenomena. And I would combine with ghosts definitely possession phenomena because every single possession phenomena, that's where the devil would possess somebody or something, or an obsession or um, haunting phenomenon where you actually have a demonic spirit. There's always paranormal um, uh, phenomena that, that are taking place at that time. And so if you see those kinds of phenomena, uh, you know pretty much um, you know, that, that something transphysical is, is happening here. So that alerts you uh, to the fact. But visitation phenomena, pure and simple, uh, they're very hard to, to, to validate. But yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to a lot of uh, visitation dreams. But you, you have to be so careful with dreams. And the reason is, is there's like four sources of dreams. One source of dreams could be a deceased relative appearing to you. Second source of dreams could be your subconscious mind. Third course of a third source of dreams could be God himself. And a fourth source of dreams, I hate to say this, can be a, a diabolical spirit. And, and uh, there's every reason why a diabolical spirit would want to give you a haunting and despairing visitation dream. Because, of course, they want you to believe it. So I would say with visitation dreams... Be very, very circumspect. Be very, very careful. Many different sources. One source of which, um, by the way, may have as its primary intention to deceive you. Okay. Right, well, thank you very much. And thanks for your question, Janine. We are out of time. I want to thank you, Father, for your time. And uh, sure. if I could ask for a closing prayer be, 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 uh, as we close out. Before we do, just a quick announcement again. We are here every Wednesday morning, uh, Perusia podcast, all completely free. 
Um, and consider if you have not yet subscribed to the email list, every week we'll send you an email with the latest podcast article. And then, of course, our YouTube channel. If you want to subscribe there, we've got hundreds of videos. I think we're up to 600 or 700 videos now, releasing them every week. There's a few a week, um, completely free. Um, please subscribe. If you click the bell, that means you'll get the notification on those videos when they upload. And of course, we are less than two weeks away, the Advent pilgrimage. So, so many of you gave us feedback, overwhelming feedback about the Rosary pilgrimage. You wanted another one. Here we go. We've got one uh, Advent pilgrimage, November 29th till Christmas Day, over 27 speakers. We've, we're going from the journey from Eden to Bethlehem. So, salvation history, the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament. So, join us for that completely free. Go to parousiamedia.com to know more. And there's the Jesus centered life as, as well. We've partnered with Paref in the Philippines, uh, the foundation there. Over 5,000 registered so far. And again, free. There's a paid and, and, and free option as well. So check all that out, perusiamedia.com, for all the upcoming events and announcements. And with that, um, in the month of the Holy Souls, the last Father, if we could close in a prayer to sign off here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord of compassion, Lord Jesus Christ, you know the challenges that we face in this world and the challenges faced by those who are being purified in that state of purgatory that where you bring them uh, into the perfection of love. I ask you, Lord, to please, uh, through these prayers, be benevolent to our whole world, be benevolent to our families, benevolent to our culture, benevolent to all the souls in purgatory, benevolent to all those who are indecisive and unbelieving in our world today, Please just shower your grace down upon them. Give them a sense of hope, a, a sense of real light, so that the purpose surging within their natures may respond to your goodness and love, and so put their faith in you. We ask all of these things through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer from the that's Father Spitzer from the Major Center. Thank you, everyone. God bless you. Thank you very much, Father. Good to be with you, Charvel. God bless you.